Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to 1 John in chapter 2, continuing on in our study of 1 John, 1 John in chapter 2. I have set the timer, so hopefully we can make it in an hour. It's a bit of a passage. It's a, it has some length to it, so I'll do my best. I titled this sermon, The Danger of and Defense Against Heresy. The Danger of and Defense Against Heresy. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. As I said, it's a, a bit of a passage. It has some length to it longer than we have been going in any of our previous study through 1 John. And so I invite you now to join in as you come and look upon God's word, and I'll read it for us this morning. Reading from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, and reading through verse 27. Friends, hear the words of the living God. Children, it is the last hour And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are, who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, Abide in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what a joy it is to hear from our living God this morning. We come from last week, remember in verses 15 through 17, where John reminds the reader, the hearer of this word, to not love the world, but to love God. To be a lover of the world is to be an enemy of God. So the natural call for believers then was to be lovers of God, which means to put to death any desire for the things of this world, any desire to love the world. And he included in that, he gave us some descriptions, right? He said, the desires of the flesh, this desire for self-gratification, the desires of the eyes, the desire for looking upon things that would please us, self-pleasing, and the pride of life the desire for self-glorification, this desire to prop oneself up above others. And from this, John begins our passage today by drawing the reader's attention to heresy. It's quite fitting that he has said this. He says, do not love the things of the world. 
and then says, don't follow all those that are teaching these false doctrines. So many times those are folks that are caught up with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and even those that were denying all of these things had a, it was a sense of idolatry because they loved their ability to hate it. They loved their ability to put it to death. They were so caught up in themselves that they would put that as the primary goal. As we discussed last week also, our world is filled with false teachers, false doctrines, false beliefs. Many of the doctrines that plague us today were present in the early church as well, as John wrote this letter. Satan's desire throughout history has been to distort God's word. He continues to do this through the false churches, the false religions, the cults, and as Paul calls them in Timothy, these doctrines of demons. These doctrines of demons. We see this so prevalent in our world today, do we not? People totally giving up on any sense of biblical truth. I pulled these from Christianity Today, which actually pulled them from Ligonier. It was a study that they did just, a, uh, just last year, actually, in 2022. And these are just a few stats that help us to see how prevalent false teaching and false doctrines have become. They say that 53% of U.S. adults and 26% of evangelicals say that the Bible is not true. God accepts faith outside of Christianity. 56% of U.S. evangelicals agree that God accepts things outside of Christianity. People, 73%, say that Jesus is a created being. 43%, this is shocking, of evangelicals say Jesus was just a teacher. We are going to look at this terminology of antichrist. And one of those things that he says in that passage as we just read is denying that Jesus is the Christ. And then a final stat just for closing it out. The statement, humans aren't sinful by nature. 57% of evangelicals would agree. 66% of U.S. adults while this isn't the main point, it just goes to show you that false teaching and false doctrines and false ideologies are prevalent and they're spreading and they're growing. As they look at the stats from year to year, we see these things continuing to grow and permeate throughout churches, throughout different faith groups, throughout different, uh, different walks of life, right? Friends, as we'll see today, all teaching has a root it has a root. It has something that it pulls from. Either that root is good or it is rotten. It is either true or it's a lie. It's either righteous or wicked. There's only two ways. That's what John has been getting us at this whole time. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. Either you confess sin or you deny that you have sin. Either you obey his commands or you disobey his commands. Either you love your brother or you hate your brother. Either you love the world or you hate the world. It's, you have one of these two things that are laying out there. This is all you have. Either you're walking and abiding in the truth and the light, as John has said, or you're walking 
in disobedience, walking in darkness. If you're following in the light, you are in Christ. But if you are following in darkness, you are incurring the wrath of God. Following after that which is a lie. However, friends, lest you get anxious by all these heresies and the thought of all of these things that are swarming around, we'll see in our passage, there's a way to combat all of this. There's a way to fight against this. We have a defense against heresy. We have a defense against these antichrists. There's a means to guard your heart and mind in the midst of battle. So for our text today, I will invite you to see three points to help us gather our thoughts as we try to navigate this longer passage. Help us to see clearly as we look upon it. First, in verses 18 through 21, the dangerous deceit of heresy. The dangerous deceit of heresy. In verses 22 and 23, we'll see the disastrous denial of heresy. The disastrous denial of heresy. And finally, in our final verses, 24 through 27, the durable dwelling of the Holy One. The durable dwelling of the Holy One. And with that, let us dive into our first point as we look at the disaster or the dangerous deceit of heresy. The dangerous deceit of heresy. I'm just going to repeat these few verses, 18 through 21. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He starts off, children, children, this term of endearment, right? We've seen it before in chapter 2 and verse 1, my little children. Chapter 2 and verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children. It's a sign of endearment, but also identifying their position, right? They're in Christ. They're children of God. They've been adopted into his family by the repentance and faith, belief in Christ. It's clearly writing to those who know truth, who know the Father. It says, children, this is the last hour. It's pointing to the current location and time that they are in. The same time that we're in today, it's this time that started at the first coming of Christ and will end upon his second coming. This last day is this last hour points to the sense also of limited time, doesn't it? We're not, in a, we're not in the infinite hour. We're not in the extended forever hour. We're in the last hour. There's limited time here that he's pointing to. We're counting down a time that we know will come, though we don't know when. Just briefly, I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. In verses 33 through 36, we see this on display But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as these days, sorry, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
until the day that Noah entered the dark ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I read a little past that. My apologies. But the reality is, is that in this we see, it was, and I actually wrote down the wrong passage, or the wrong verses too. Matthew 24, 36, starting through 39. But with that being said, either way, the reality is, is we do not know the day or the hour of the Master's return. We don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. We see this continue in the parable of the virgins in uh, chapter 25 of Matthew. And so he says, you are in the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John reminds the people that they have heard of a coming Antichrist. They're on the lookout for this person, right? They're probably expecting this to happen at any time. We know that through church history, the expectation was that Christ would return almost immediately. And so they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and they're waiting and they're trying to point out who it could be. It says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming and so now many Antichrists have come. So while they're prepared for these final days because they're living in this last hour and they're looking for this Antichrist, it says there's already Antichrists all around you. What does that term mean, Antichrist? What, how do we understand that? The Greek, Antichristos, Ante meaning in opposition, right? That's the classic understanding we have. It's in opposition, but it also means in place of. Trying to be a substitute for. Christos meaning obviously Christ, the Messiah, is talking about Jesus himself. And so this Antichrist is the one that acts in opposition to, but also in place of Christ, or attempts to act in, uh, in place of Christ. He's a deceiver. He's deceitful. It's like a generic knockoff that you think will work but doesn't work. There's only one that works, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, the incarnate God, Christ Jesus. We can think of many of those antichrist figures throughout history, can we not? And no, it's not just the guy that cuts you off in traffic. But there's actual antichrist figures that people have pointed to throughout history. The reformers talked about the Pope specifically, and they would say... Because he calls himself the vicar of Christ. What does that mean? Vicarius Christi is the Latin for that. It's a title of the Pope implying that he is the supreme and universal primacy. Both of honor and jurisdiction over the church of Christ. That's the, that's the definition. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that uh, the Pope, Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. And so you can see why, as the reformers are being persecuted by this wicked, corrupt Pope, they would say, there is the Antichrist. That is the one that goes against Christ. He's attempting to step into the role of Christ and saying that he is all you need. He can exercise all authority unhindered, without any restrictions. Many others throughout history have stated men like Stalin or Mussolini. Some have said Hitler. It's probably the most common. 
Even most recently, some even said President Obama or President Trump. But with that in mind, while we may not know the true identity of the Antichrist, there are a few things that we can pull from our text to help us in our study. There's one thing that you must know is that the word Antichrist is only used here in First and Second John. The actual word Antichrist, even though it's a very common like, term within Christ, uh, Christian language, is only really utilized by First John here. He doesn't even use it in Revelation. He doesn't use it in his gospel. It's only here. And so a few things we can pull, and I pulled these from Colin Cruz's commentary, and I think are helpful for us to consider. The Antichrist figure is a part of early Christian teaching. It's a great figure that was made distinct from lesser figures. Both the Antichrist and the Antichrists, the plural goal was to deceive the greater and the lesser. All of the sources of the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians, Matthew, Revelation, point to a figure who is outside the church. But what John does here is he points to somebody who came from within. Points to somebody who came from within the church. And so while there's some lack of true identity, right? We can't say, obviously, that it was necessarily Trump or Obama. We can't say that it was Hitler. We can say that there might be a continuation of this spirit of the Antichrist, as we'll see in 1 John chapter 4. We can gather some things from the passages that are around it. We can understand that as we look, this Antichrist are the ones who desire to deceive, the ones who desire to deny the truth of who Christ is. But in reality, and I don't even want to spend a lot of time here because I don't think John spends a lot of time here. It's not even a focus area. He says, there's this one that's coming. You can look for that, but look around you today. See what's out there right now. There's antichrists all around. He says it plurality, right? He says antichrists with an S at the end. There are those that are in opposition. They desire to be in the place of Christ. Notice he says many. There's many of them. There's many antichrists. This is not just a small group, but rather a very large one. It fits perfectly with the narrow gate passage, does it not? Matthew chapter 7. I'm just going to turn back there again. Matthew chapter 7. In verses 13 and 14, I'm pretty sure I actually have the right ones written down this time. Verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Friends, the reality is, is that there are many, many false teachers. There's many false religions, cults, heresies. And so we look out on this sea of those that are anti-Christ. We don't want to be flippant in utilizing that, do we? We don't want to just yell out at everyone who goes against us or even has a little difference in theology and say, ah, you're an antichrist. But there is a spirit of the antichrist that permeates all these false religions, permeates all these false teachers, permeates through all of the cults and, and, and atheism and all of these things to deceive and pull people away from the truth. John will go on throughout this text to help us identify those that carry on as antichrists. 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 3 tells us that they do not confess Jesus is from God, as we will see here. So John says the Antichrist is coming, but currently there are Antichrists all around. You're in battle against him. And he continues, therefore we know it is the last hour. Because there are Antichrists, we can know that it is the last hour. One of the ways in which we know that we are in the last times, in the last days, in the last hours, is the prevalence of false teaching. Christ said so himself, right? Matthew chapter 24, in verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If it wasn't for the indwelling of the Spirit, as we'll see in a little bit, then the false Christs and the false prophets, they're so good at what they do. They're so perfected in their ability that they'll lead anyone away. Especially, obviously, those who are not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the elect. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching by having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. This is exactly what we see happening all the time. A sad reality on the state of our world, a sad reality on the state of the church, the visible church as I speak, not the, not the true church, but the visible church, those that would look out and say these people are all Christians, many of them are just tickling the itching ears. They're just giving the people what they want to hear. John continues and he says they went out from us, these antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So that John helps the reader now to start identifying. Starts to point them out. Says, you know that they're out there. We know that we're in the last days because of it, but how do we identify? And he says, be attentive to this. They left. One of the ways in which we tell who are the Antichrists is, by their apostasy, their abandonment of the faith, the true faith. They may still claim to be Christians, but they've gone and wandered off into some kind of heresy that has swept them up. This was with the Gnostics. They would say that they're, they're still Christians. They believe in Christ. This was what the Docetists said. They still believed in Christ. They just thought that it was different than what the apostles taught. They just thought it was different than what the church believed. It was just different than what Christ himself said. They went out from us. John is speaking of a great departure from the church. We talked about this early on in 1 John as we started our study that the church probably had experienced a great kind of departure. There was a lot of people that were leaving the church to go and follow these false teachers and false doctrines. And it left a, a good chunk of people there, but these people were probably wondering, well, what am I missing? What am I not getting? What, what's wrong? Why did all these people all of a sudden leave? And John clears that up. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were not of us. They, these heretics, these false teachers, these antichrists, they were leaving to follow some other doctrine. And John reassures the believer here, you are not missing anything. I know it may feel like it at times, right? We have all had those times where we 
hear of these great experiences of different people. Oh man, I, I heard God speak. Oh man, I, I saw somebody healed. Oh man, I was praying and suddenly I was speaking in a language I didn't understand. I've used this many times over the last few weeks. I was brushing my teeth and Jesus was there. We see these things and we hear these things and we think to ourselves, why don't I get that? What's wrong? What am I missing here? Am I missing something? But John reassures the believer, you're not missing anything here. You don't need to have a fear of missing out. Their departure showed exactly where they, where they stand. Their departure from true doctrine, from the church, they were not of us. They're not true believers. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, right? It says if they would have been of us, if they were truly believers, if they were following the teaching of Christ and the apostles, having repented and believed in Christ alone for salvation, submitting under the authority of a local church, they would have been with us. They would have continued with us. They'd be here still today. They would have persevered in faith because we know that this is a work of Christ. The preservation of the saints, right? This is the last of the tulip, the points of Calvinism, right? This point of the doctrines of grace, preservation of the saints. We just talked about this at the end of last year. Jude chapter 24, now to him who is able, or sorry, chapter 24, Jude verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christ alone, he's able to keep you to the very end. The saving work of Christ is truly effectual till the end. You're not saved and then lose your salvation. These are not people who are saved and then just, quote unquote, backslide and then they fell away and then, well, maybe they'll come back around. No, if they are believers, they will be kept until the end. Does this not mean that they will go through seasons where they sinned? No. Does this mean that they will not have areas of difficulty, struggle, trial, where they need to put to death sin, their own pride, any of those things? By no means. But the reality is, is that Christ will save them and he will keep them till the end. And he says, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. They left, they walked out, they never returned. For the sake of the truth here, he says, became plain. Because they left, because they, were, they denied the faith, because they went off to follow some heretical view, they made it clear that, it was, that they were not of the faith, they were not of us. It's clear to the naked eye that everyone can look upon it and they can't misconstrue it or misunderstand it, they just look upon it and they say, this one is not of us. And notice what he says, they all are not of us, all. None of them were left. They all, it's an encompassing word for those that had gone out. All those that had left, they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Notice he uses the present tense here, you have been it's pointing to something that happened, happened at the salvation of the person, but then is ongoing, something that's habitually occurring. They're anointed. Chrisma is the 
Greek word here. It's a, talks about almost an ointment or an oil. It's used in the Old Testament to describe the anointing of a king or the high priest for ministry. But here he's pointing to something specific. He says, you've been, a, you've been anointed by the Holy One. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that enters into the believer upon their salvation. John chapter 16 and verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, Christ speaking to his followers. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And because of this anointing, he says, you have all knowledge. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the believer has all knowledge. So this isn't to say, though, that you can just stop reading or stop school or stop any of these things. But he says you have knowledge of everything that you need for salvation. It doesn't mean become a, a sense of omniscience, right? We don't become like God in this sense. But rather, you possess the resources for knowing the truth. You can decipher the truth. What an attack, right, by John against false teachers, right? This little line, it seems almost in some ways insignificant, or it seems like it kind of be easy to brush over, but it's a straight attack against false teachers. He says, but you, believer, have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you have all knowledge. So everyone that's out there telling you, you need something else, you don't need that. You have all knowledge. He doesn't say you have just knowledge, he says you have all of it. There isn't something else that you need in a sense of a, an additional secret power or a, some secret experience, some power that needs to be unleashed. You have all that you need. The Gnostics and the Docetists walked away. And the reason they walked away was because they had some, quote, deeper, better knowledge. They had some personal experience that they pointed to. And John says, believer, you are anointed and have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. John is very clear for us here. His goal is not to correct something. They did not have to add something. He wasn't like, oh, I forgot to tell you last time I saw you. No, he was trying to subvert this false teaching and reaffirm what they know to be true. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth. They knew it. They knew the truth because you know it. They knew that which had been taught by the apostles. They knew that which was of the Savior Jesus Christ as regards the most important thing, right? Salvation. They knew it. They knew that which was salvation. They had the anointing of the Spirit. They had the ability to know truth. And once again, John is not saying that they have a perfect knowledge. It's not saying that they have all of every knowledge. It doesn't mean that they didn't still have to know how to read or write or do math. It didn't mean that they had everything, but they did have the resource to do it. They had the anointing of the Holy One, which guides them against error, against sin. And because they knew the Father, they knew that they had been reconciled to Him. And they were saved. And John makes this almost too obvious statement. He says, because no lie is of the truth. It's a contrast of 
kind of of what he's done in past, right? He says, well, there's a lie and there's truth. There's, There's contrasting things here. No lies of the truth. These two things cannot coexist in the same moment about the same thing. Either something's a lie or something is truth. And believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the truth. No lie is of the truth. And so thus far, John has introduced the reader to the reality that there are many antichrists in their presence, in their midst. He's shown us one of the primary ways to identify those. He said those that are in opposition of Christ, those that desire to take his place, these antichrists, they're the ones that apostatize. They're the ones that turn from the faith. Sadly, we see this happening all the time. We see it all the time in pop culture, even Christian pop culture, if you want to use those, those terms. People who are, quote, deconstructing their faith, finding some new understanding. Those that have denied true doctrine and followed in, as Timothy called, or as Paul calls in Timothy, doctrines of demons. Those that leave, those that are following off on some other path, we can then just say, well, they were not of us. One of the signs of true faith is a person who commits to a church, who commits to the truth and stays there. Now, this does not mean that there aren't a number of reasons that people leave churches. So I don't want you to get confused. John is not just saying, well, anytime somebody leaves a church, you just say, they're antichrists and get rid of them. That's not the case. No, rather, the reality is, is there's a number of reasons people leave churches. One of those being that false teaching begins to creep in and take root. And for a sake of holding on to the truth of the word, you have to leave at times. And so we don't want to throw out that term too quickly. But what we want to do is be able to say that when you leave the faith or you go, faith or you go into a false teaching, it is concerning. And we can argue and say that these people were not really of the faith if they can follow there. However, this is not the only thing to be on the lookout for. John will continue his exposition here of heresies and false teachers and the antichrists in our next section. So let's take a look here. The disastrous denial of the heresy of heresy. Verses 22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one, knows the, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So we see another way to identify these Antichrists, these heretics, these deceivers. It's those that deny that Jesus is God calls them liars. He identifies them with their father, right? Remember from John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, he says, if you deny Christ, you are a liar. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, everyone knows that Jesus lived. There's no argument for that. 
history, all historic reporting can all point to Jesus. We found numerous documents and writings and all kinds of things throughout history that says, yes, Jesus was alive and he lived and he was the son of a carpenter and that he died on a cross by Roman execution. All of these things are true. All, everybody can see that. So even the greatest historian can read a book and say, yep, Jesus lived. But who do you say that he is, is the question. Who do you say that he is? As we saw from those statistics earlier, there's a large chunk of evangelicals today that argue he is not the Christ. He is not God. But they're wrong. Jesus is is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. If he's not the Christ, then what's the point? If he's not the Christ, there's no salvation. If he's not the Christ, then how, how would we be reconciled to God? There's no way. There had to be a sacrifice for our sin. Blood had to be poured out for our debts. So if Jesus was not the Messiah, if he was not the anointed one, if he was not the Savior, the one promised of old, then how would we be saved? And so it is, if you believe anything other than the biblical truth revealed about the person and work of Jesus, that he is indeed the incarnate God, the God made flesh that came into this earth, that lived a perfect sinless life, that died on a cross, that was buried and rose again. If you do not believe that, you are believing a lie and you are not saved. Friends, that is a scary thing. Let us not be deceived into thinking that we can believe something about Christ, about Jesus that is not in the Bible. Don't you dare, don't you dare think that you can just believe he was just a good teacher. He was, you're right, but that's not enough. Don't believe that he was just a guy who could do some miracles. That's great, but that was not it. He was the Savior. It was his blood that brought about salvation. We see this, right, in our affirmation that we make from Ligonier's affirmation of Christology or confession on Christology. He says, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law. He atoned for sin and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, reigning over all things. And here's this key point at the end. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we praise his holy name forever. Amen. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. This is the Antichrist. Speaking of those false teachers, those Antichrists, those that were mentioned before, what do they deny? They deny the Father and the Son. But he just said, right, he, just earlier, he said, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? It says nothing about denying the Father as well. Well, to deny Christ, to deny that Jesus is the Christ, is to deny the Father. 
They come together. You can't have one without the other. The false teacher denies the very deity of Christ, which means that he wasn't born of a virgin. He was not perfect and sinless in every way, that he didn't suffer for sins and bear all sins, that he wouldn't rise again. This is all the case, guys. If you believe that you can have one without the other, you have neither. They come together. The triune God is one and the same. We can't separate them out and just be like, you know, I'll take a little bit of the Christ, but I don't want the Father. Or I'll take a little bit of the Father, but I don't want to follow the Christ. I don't want to profess him as Lord. No one who denies the Son has the Father. To have the Son is to have the Father. You can't have it both ways. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me, Christ talking about himself, says he has seen the Father. There's no way to the Father except through the Son, right? John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no way to the Father except through the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 so everyone who, not, who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you confess the Son, you have the Father. You know, the Father is known by you. And so we see that there are two main points here that John is drawing to us, or drawing us in to see that are these heretics, these antichrists, these deniers, these false teachers. He says that they apostatize and they deny the deity of Christ. Sadly, as I mentioned, we see this all, out, all around us today. We saw the reports, or I mentioned those reports, but we see this even in churches that claim to be Christian, but are not. Jehovah's Witnesses openly say they do not believe that Jesus is God. They say they worship the Father, but they believe that Jesus was merely a teacher. We see that the Mormons teach that Christ was a created being. He was created. He wasn't God incarnate. He was created. Roman Catholics teach that Christ once and for all sin, or a death for sin, his sacrifice for sin wasn't enough. And hence, they need to re-sacrifice him upon the altar every day in the Mass. Like the God of the universe can't just do it. Like his death, his blood poured out wasn't enough. What a shame it is. Friends, we must actively defend truth. And that truth being the deity of Christ. Friends, if you don't defend that, then you're standing on shaky ground. You're standing on something that doesn't hold water. You're in a boat that is sinking. You must confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the incarnate God, that he came from heaven and entered into this world. Not that he was created, not that he wasn't God, but that he was the incarnate God that came into this world. He entered into our space. He entered into our dwelling. Friends, to do this, we have our final point here. The durable dwelling of the Holy One. 
It'll help us in our defense against all of these false teachings, all of these false beliefs, all of these false her heretical antichrists. Starting in verse 24 and reading through the end. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as, his, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Notice he starts right here with a command. This is an imperative. He doesn't make a question or a suggestion. He makes a command and he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He desires that this teaching that they've had, this word from God, would just penetrate into them and it would abide and it would stay and it would hold on. This abiding is this present tense again. It's what we saw earlier. You have been anointed, right? Abide is an ongoing abiding. It's active. You have these things that are abiding in you. It's this word that's abiding in your mind and in your heart, in your soul. It's penetrating the depths. It's rooting out all the simple ways and filling your soul with that which it desperately needs, the word of God, the truth of God. Did you notice what he said, what you've heard, right? So if anybody tries to argue later, well, it says we have all knowledge. I don't need to hear anything else. It says it's what you've heard. It's the spoken word. It's that which has been taught to you. So as we go through this, there's no reason for us to think that John is saying, well, once you become a believer, you can just separate from a church. There's no reason for us to believe that once you become a believer, well, I don't need to read this Bible anymore. I have everything I need. No, friends, that is not what he's saying. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. If that which you have heard stays within you, if it rests in you and it takes deep root within you, it's like the parable of the sower, right? Back in Matthew 13. I'm just going to turn back there real quick. Matthew chapter 13. And we see him talk about this parable of the sower, right? It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them the things, many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and procured grain, or produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And he says then in verse 18 to explain this, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes out and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what, the sown, what is sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. 
but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for the one, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, the love of the world and the things of the world, as we might say, chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is what he's talking about. He says, if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, it sinks into you. Being like good soil, that it penetrates and it holds on, then you will have fellowship, relationship with the Father and the Son. It's not simply talking about uh, salvation, but talking about this deeper relationship, this fellowship with the Lord. Walking in the light as you walk deeper in truth. To be close to the Lord experientially must have the word of God abiding in you. It means to actually have an experience of this salvation, this faith. And this isn't talking about healing or tongues or anything like that, but having this deep root where through thick and thin you are solid. Through rich and poor, you are solid. Through joy and sorrows, you are solid in the Lord. Notice you must have the Son, though, to have the Father. It says you two will abide in the Son and in the Father. Once again, he says you can't have one without the other. You must have both. This eliminates the belief that there's multiple ways to the Father. This eliminates the belief that there's any possible way to salvation except through Christ. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Speaking of Christ himself, he said, this is the promise that he made to us. Christ being the incarnate God, perfect in all faithfulness. He says, what will you have but eternal life? John chapter 10 and verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You have relationship with the Father and the Son and in this he had promised you that you will have eternal life and that no one, including the evil one, including the Antichrist, including anybody else, is able to snatch you out of his hand. Getting to these final verses and we're looking good on time. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Beginning in verse 18, remember, speaking about these antichrists, these false teachers, they're of Satan. They are not those that are kind of right or sort of right or maybe kind of true. They were of Satan. They're liars, as he's already said. And what do they desire? What do liars do but deceive? When you've lied, because I know you have, because I have too, what do we do? We're deceiving one another person, right? We're not telling the truth. And that's what he's saying. He says these antichrists, these deceivers, they're trying to deceive you now. They're trying to pull you away from the truth. They're trying to lead you astray. They're trying to get you to go off of the narrow path and onto the broad path. They're trying to get you from truth to false errors and doctrines. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, 
just as it has taught you, abide in him. Every believer receives anointing. Every believer receives an anointing. Remember John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this anointing. You will have no need that anyone should teach you, he says. Remember, this does not mean that you don't need to be taught by humans. This does not mean that you don't need to be taught anything. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the good work, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Even Christ himself says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, it doesn't mean that you don't need to continue to learn. But it does mean that you have all of those resources for truth. Remember that we desire to grow, right? We desire to attain spiritual maturity. We saw this back in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He talks about becoming like fathers or like young men to move out of the childish phase and to continue to grow, being able to overcome the evil one, to have this knowledge of the Father who is from the beginning. What it does mean here, what he's saying when he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you, he's talking about those false teachers. You can look out on those false teachers, those antichrists, and you can say, I don't need whatever you're selling. I'm not buying whatever you're giving out. I have no need for whatever you have to teach because what I have is the truth. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, does this mean that you'll have everything? No, we've already seen that. What it means, though, is that you have which is, that which is from the beginning, this spiritual truth which you heard. He says, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, as you continue to grow and is true, and is no lie. It's real. It is true. It's not a lie. The Holy Spirit will always teach that which aligns with truth. And so anytime somebody says, you know, I'm feeling this guide of the Spirit, but it doesn't align with the Word of God, you can tell them this isn't of the Spirit. It's not truth. Just as it has taught you, abide in Him. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit has taught, right, has shown you from the beginning, from when you were first saved, when you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when that spirit indwelt you, he says, abide in him. That gives another imperative. He starts this little section and ends it with an imperative. He says, first, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And now at the end he says, abide in him. Stay close in your fellowship and communion with the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Do not allow the deceit of this world to draw your attention away, but rather abide in Him, the vine. Stay close to Him. And so as we come to a close today on our passage, I want to leave you with just a few practical ways in which you can, as believers, defend against heresy, against false teachers against these antichrists that John speaks about. Notice I said believers. This is for you. 
If you're not a believer, then you really are not equipped to defend against heresy. You have nothing to really drive you on the right path. You can so easily be swayed and and drift because you don't have the Spirit naturally guiding truth in you, revealing truth in you, helping you to decipher truth. If you're not a believer, then you're not equipped for this battle. The Spirit is helping the believer and gives knowledge and understanding to combat sin and heresy. That's why I plead week after week, month after month, year after year, that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and believe on Him and Him alone. Friend, lest you not only perish in hell, but in the meantime, be swayed into all kinds of false belief that leads into all kinds of sin and evil and wickedness. If you're not a believer here this morning, any of you, hear the truth of God's word. Repent, believe on Christ, for you will die. And my honest, true desire, my honest, true desire is that you know Christ and that you can enter into his kingdom. Because if you don't know Christ, if you have not repented and believed, you're only going to get eternal punishment and not eternal life. And so, believer, how do you defend against heresy? By abiding in the word. Given strength and understanding by the Spirit. And here's some practical ways that we abide in the word. Allowing the word to remain in us. First, we must read the word. Friends, if you aren't reading it, you can't know it. You must spend time in the word. You must have familiarity with the word. You must be reading it. You must believe the word. As we saw earlier, there's even evangelicals in our culture today are supposed evangelicals. I use that term so loosely because you can't really be an evangelical and not affirm the truth and the inerrancy and the, the power of the scriptures, the authority of the scripture. So you read the word, but you also must believe the word. You must believe that the word of God is true, that God is faithful to use it for your sanctification and growth. If you don't believe that, then... It's not going to be able to abide in you. It's not going to have any lasting power in you. You have to believe that this is the inerrant, perfect word of God. This is the authority of God that he has given to us. It's his revelation. One of my classes in seminary, the professor started off his, the class and he did this. He grabbed his Bible and he held it over his head. And he hit his head just like that. And he said, this is God's word. I hold it over me. I don't stand on top of it. And this was how we should look at God's word. We should look at it as being truly what he says it is. It's, it's his authoritative, inerrant word. It's perfect in all of its ways. So you must read the word. You must believe the word. You must repeat the word. You must meditate on it. Recall it. Recall a passage. Consider it. Review it. Study it. Pray about it. Be in that word and know that word must memorize the word. This is why we do these scripture memorizations every week. And I know many of us are bad about it. I'm not always good about it either. But we need to continue in memorizing the word. Have the word upon your heart. It'll give you strength for the battle against heresy, against false teaching, against the Antichrist. 
to stand firm in truth, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, as 1 Timothy says. You must memorize the word. John Piper talks about one of the things that he has. He has this thing he says, aptat. It's his way of fighting against sin. And he says, A is for first admitting that you are struggling against sin. And then P is promises. But how can you repeat those promises if you don't know God's word? You must memorize the word. And finally, share the word. Sharing the word with others helps us to recall it, helps us to know it, helps us to understand it, helps us to truly grasp it. Friends, it's so important because, as you know, if you just try and absorb but you never share out, you never sometimes really understand. This is what we do in schools all the time. This is how teachers work. Teachers don't always just repeat information. They have to know it, right? Because students are going to ask questions. We have to understand it or else we can only ever have a superficial understanding. And so to have true abiding depth of the word within us to combat heresy, to combat sin, we must have it known and shared out. And that's part of it. So I'm just going to run back through those. Read the word. Believe the word. Repeat the word. Memorize the word. And share the word. Friends, we live in a world that is filled with the spirit of the Antichrist. We live in a world where Antichrists are all around, those that deny that Jesus is the Christ, those that deny um, the truth of the word, those that have left the faith, as we saw. But we have an ability. We have the power to fight against it. We have the ability to stand up and stand firm in the faith, not to fall as many have, but to stand firm as God's elect in love and in truth as we go about our days, as we joyfully await the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, I invite you again, if you are not a believer here this morning, to truly hear this plea. You will, will experience eternal punishment if you do not know Christ. But, as we saw here, this is the promise that he made to us. Jesus Christ himself, eternal life for all those that are in the Father and the Son. And how do we do that? But by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins, and putting our faith wholly and solely upon him for salvation. The only means, the only way, the only possible way to go. There's no other face that will get you there. There's no other ways to approach him but by Christ. And everyone who knows Christ knows the Father. So, if you do not know Christ, repent and believe upon him today. Let us close in prayer.